Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We ask that your spirit will join us. May we know and experience your love more fully. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are starting a new quarter, and it's called Feed My Sheep, First and Second Peter. And as we go into the lesson, I thought we should check out the introduction to the entire quarterly, if you have one. And in the third paragraph of the introduction, it says, besides Peter's warning about false teachers, the suffering the church's experience is a topic that he returns to several times. This suffering, he says, mirrors the sufferings of Jesus who took our sins in his body when he died on the cross. But the good news is that Jesus' death brought nothing less than the freedom from eternal death caused by sin, as well as a life of righteousness here and now for those who trust in him. What does it mean that he took our sins in his body when he died on the cross? The lesson references 1 Peter 2.24, so here's 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Our sins in his body. Does this mean a record of all the sins, theft, murder, adulterous acts, lies, evil deeds were tattooed on his skin? Is that what it means? In his body? Does it mean that the trillions and trillions of bad deeds were physically punished in Jesus' body? Now this is a common belief. Do you think it's possible even for the hundreds of trillions of sins of the billions and billions of people to be adequately punished, if you hold that punishment view, in one human within a 24-hour period? For those who think so, yes, that's what happened. All the sins, and I've heard preachers from all denominations and and people with big national worldwide names and programs and stuff teach this idea that all the sins, past, present, and future, are put on the Christ and punished on the cross. If you think this is so, that, that you can get adequate punishment for all the sins of all people in 24 hours, then why do these same people teach that the unrepentant wicked will be punished many days and weeks and maybe eons for their sins if you can do it in 24 hours or less? Do you see a problem with that? That doesn't make sense at all. But that's what they teach. Yes. What they say is that if he wasn't man, he was God. Mm-hmm. God was dying for humanity. I mean, it's like a, a man dying for an insect, you know. Yes, but they're saying that the punishment for the evil... No, the punishment wasn't his. The punishment was the sinful beings. And the punishment for all the sins of all the sinful humans were placed on this divine being who experienced the punishment that the sins deserved, not what he deserved. He didn't deserve it. And so if it's possible to punish all the bad deeds of all the billions of people, which are trillions and trillions of sins, and you can get adequate punishment in under 24 hours... Why do they then teach that all the unrepentant wicked will have to be punished many days? It doesn't make any sense at all. Because there's, I mean, think about it. The unrepentant person, whoever that person is, maybe a single murderer. They committed one murder. Well, Christ was was suffering the punishment for all the murderers of all the world, of all time. Uh, Trillions of, I mean, maybe not trillions, but, but hundreds of thousands, millions of murders. Certainly, Hitler killed six million people. So there's at least six million murders there under 24 hours he's punished. Why are they saying this one murderer's got to punish for days? It doesn't make any sense at all. Punishment theology doesn't work. So if you go back to the Greek and look at the word translated sins in the, uh, in this passage, the sins in his, in his body, the Greek word is hamartia, excuse me, hamartia, hamartia, and it's translated 174 times, 172 as sin, once as sinful, and once as offense. And there's a definition, which is the typical definition that we would have. So we have a choice in the translation. We can translate it as sins, and we can translate it as sin. Is there a difference when you, when you translate it, Jesus bore our sin in his body versus Jesus bore our sins in his body? Do those say the exact same thing to you? Do you hear different things? Different. What do you, what's different about he bore our sin in his body? The sin is what it, 
The condition of sinfulness, right? So he bore our sinfulness, the condition of sin, not the acts. Right. Now, that's, I, that's exactly right. It connotes something quite different. That we're dead in sins, and when Adam sinned, he... We're dead in sin. Yes, we're, de- you we're dead, and that's what happened to Adam and Eve when they sinned. They, were, they passed from life to death. Because they're because they've even though they were okay. physically dead, and, they passed and so as you described that, I agree completely. The question is why? Under one law model, God's law functions like human laws. They pass from life to death because they pass from a condition of innocence to a condition of guilt under the divine law, which required the divine government to condemn them. So they're on death row, awaiting the the execution of the death penalty, and they're under the sentence of death. Or their condition actually changed to that which is out of harmony with how God has built life to exist, and they have a terminal condition. Right. And that's why Paul always talks about sinners being dead. Right. So why would, they, why would the translators, and essentially all translators, with the exception of the remedy, <laughs> has chosen sins here? Why would they do that? When, they, when, it, when it's just as legitimate to put the singular, sin. Is it possible that they have gone to, the, to, gone to the text with a presupposition, a belief system prior to reading that God's law functions like our laws and sins are bad deeds and bad actions and therefore the bad deeds and bad actions which require punishment were put on Christ at the cross? Is this possible? This, this assumption is, is already operating in their mind. And if we interpret the cross as bad deeds needing punishment which is level four and below thinking in our moral development stages, then we have God punishing his son at the cross. And we put God in the role of executioner, the the role of the source of inflicted pain in order to make sure sins get punished. If sin is primarily acts rather than a condition of being, legal wrongs, breaking imposed law, then what do you think Jesus, if that's the truth, what do you think Jesus would have said to Nicodemus when Nicodemus asked him about salvation, do you think he would have said something like this? Unless a man have their sins punished and legal debt paid, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And which Nicodemus might have gone, how can a man be executed for his sin and still enter heaven? And Jesus might have said, well, by having someone else killed in your place and claiming the legal legal accounting as righteous, even though you're still wicked. That's exactly what's taught in Christianity, in the penal model. That Jesus took the penalty, and when you claim his blood payment, God declares you to be righteous, even though you're not. You're just as wicked as ever. But now in the courtrooms of heaven, you're accounted to be righteous, even though you're not. And so it's through legal loopholing. Jesus said, there's a legal loophole we can create. You won't be any better. You'll still be just as wicked as always. But we'll wink (laughs) and let you into heaven. This is a corrupt gospel taught to our students who then become pastors and professors and keep perpetuating the lie. But if sin is a state of being out of harmony, a condition of sinfulness, out of harmony from, from God's nature and perfection of love, which is terminal, then what would Jesus say to Nicodemus? Unless a man be born again, recreated, which means have a new heart and right spirit, regenerated, renewed, You can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow, that fits perfectly. The paragraph also says that Jesus' death brought nothing less than the freedom from eternal death caused by sin. This is absolutely true. The question is, why does Jesus' death free us from eternal death? Why does sin result in death? And how did the death of Jesus fix the problem so that we don't have to die? In the legal model, it's because death is the punishment from God and Jesus took the punishment so God doesn't have to punish anyone else. The problem in that model is God and Jesus fixes God so God doesn't have to kill us. In the healing reality, it's because the condition is one that is out of harmony with how life is built by God to operate and therefore it's terminal and Jesus came and cured the condition. And all who trust him as Peter says in other places, partake of the divine nature. 
and are reborn, renewed, recreated, restored to harmony to, with, to God and how he's designed life. So here's that same passage that we read a moment ago from the remedy. He took upon himself our sinfulness, our terminal condition, and in his own person carried it upon the cross so that we could be freed from sin and live the right way, loving God and others more than ourselves. You have been healed by the remedy procured by his painful ordeal. Next paragraph in the lesson states, Peter says that Jesus not only died for our sins, but will return to earth and usher in the judgment of God. He stresses the fact that the prospect of judgment should have significant practical implications in the life of the believer. When Jesus returns, he will destroy all sin and will cleanse the earth with fire. Then Christians will receive the inheritance that God has been storing up for them in heaven. The lesson says that Jesus will return to usher in judgment of God in reference to 2 Peter 3, 10 through 12. And here's 2 Peter 3, 10 through 12 from the NIV. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. The day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. So what are they saying in the quarterly referencing this passage is the judgment of God. Are they saying that God's judgment is the infliction of destruction? That God is the destroyer? Are they teaching that God is the source of inflicted pain, suffering, and eternal death? Note they, they reference 2 Peter 3.7, which says, By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. What do you, what do you, how would you, how would you respond to people? How do you explain this text? I see a lot of, good, I I can see furrowed brows. That means there's some thinking going, good. What are the lesson authors missing that would cause them to describe Peter's writings in such a way as to make God the source of pain and suffering and infliction of death? I think they're missing the truth about God as the creator and his laws are the laws upon which reality are built to operate. Most people who view scripture through the lens of human laws, system of rules that require judicial oversight and infliction of just punishments, if you go to the scripture with that assumption, then you come up with conclusions that what Peter's describing is a judicial process at the end of time where all the records are reviewed and God determines who's innocent and who's guilty. And based on that, how guilty you are and how many sins you've got. And then maybe even there's some committees in heaven who meet to look over the record. So it's not even God himself doing it. You all come into agreement that this is really what that person deserves. And then God uses his power to inflict that punishment, to torture them as long as they deserve it before he kills them. Ah. And then we sing, holy, holy, holy. (laughs) before I give you the evidence to show that that interpretation is completely false and is not consistent with inspiration I thought I'd read to you a little passage from manuscript release page 14 one of the founders of the Adventist church and it starts out with these three words this is her perspective You, you, you think it through because we're talking about inspiration how inspiration works whoever writes or speaks and stands up as a spokesperson for God, they're still human beings. Like Peter had to be corrected by Paul, and you have to think it through for yourself and decide, do I agree with that or not? Right? Okay. But here's the first three words it starts out with. I was shown. Before we even go on, what's that imply that this author is suggesting the source of this insight comes from? God, I should. This, this author is suggesting that, that we were shown by the Holy Spirit. Okay, and what, what we're shown? I was shown that the judgments, what are we talking about here in this passage? Judgment. Okay, I was shown that the judgments of God would not come directly out from the Lord upon them, but in this way. They placed themselves beyond his protection. He warns, corrects, reproves, and points out the only path of safety. Then if those who have been the objects of his special care will follow their own course, independent of the Spirit of God, after repeated warnings, if they choose their own way, then he does not commission his angels to prevent Satan's decided attack upon them. 
It is Satan's power that is at work at sea and on land, bringing calamity and distress, sweeping off multitudes to make sure of his prey. The storm and tempest, both sea and land, will be. For Satan has come down with great wrath. He, he is at work. He knows his time is short, and he is not restrained. We shall see more terrible manifestations of his great power than we've ever dreamed of. That's consistent, by the way, with Revelation chapter 14. And the angel comes from the east, telling the angels the four corners of the earth, which are holding back the winds of strife, hold, 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 until a certain event happens. But what were those angels who were holding back the winds of strife given the power to do? In the text, to harm the land and the sea and the trees. Now, how do they harm? By letting go what they're holding back. This is exactly what's being described here. So what is God's judgment at the end of time? Letting go. Setting people free. This is design law. When the life giver lets go, what happens? Death. There you go. The only, only the immature, those on milk, who Paul says are not acquainted with righteousness, those who understand God's law functions like human law, cling to Satan's false view of God's law and teach God as the source of inflicted pain, suffering, and inflicted death. Now let's consider... Some more. Some packs more. Revelation twenty fourteen, because it also mentions fire. Peter mentions fire. Revelation twenty fourteen says, "Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death." What's thrown into the lake of fire? Death and Hades. Now, answer me this. So, death, Hades, is another word for the grave. Death and Hades, death and the grave, are thrown into the lake of fire, and they are killed. They are destroyed in the lake of fire. How does one destroy death? Adolf Hitler gassed and burned with fire in ovens, millions of people burning them. And in doing so, was he destroying death? He was not destroying death at all. Are we saying God acts like Hitler? He burns people. But somehow when God does it, it destroys death. It doesn't bring death. Hmm. Can you kill death by killing people? You cannot. How would one destroy death? What is it that kills death? Life kills death. There you go. Exactly right. Now, the Bible says that Jesus' death destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. Second Timothy one ten. How was Jesus' death able to destroy death? He reconnected us to God, the source of life. He reconnected us to God, the source of life? Don't disagree. Mechanistically, do we understand how it happened? Why his death destroyed death, but no other death destroys death. Yes. In heaven, I mean, in the great conflict before even earth was here, there was question remaining for them, what is sin? What is sin all about? What, what is this whole thing about sin? God had to provide some form of demonstration of what sin would do in its ugliest sense. And, and by the cross, when, it, when they got to the cross, that demonstration was clearly laid out before not only just man, but all of heaven. So demonstration, does demonstration, and I, just, I agree completely. One of the things that says in Scripture in Hebrews 2.14 that by his death he destroyed him with the power of death that is the devil. The devil holds the power of death. What's his power? Life eternal. We do Bible math. John 17.3. Life eternal is? You know knowing, God. knowing God. If life eternal is knowing God, then eternal death is? Not, not knowing God. And we don't know God, then we don't trust him. Okay? So then eternal death is not knowing God. Then we destroy death by? Destroying whatever it is that keeps us from knowing God and restoring us to... So maybe we should unpack what it is that life is based upon. And if we understand what life is built upon, maybe we can understand what causes death. And then we can understand how Christ's death, and we already got one element, which is the demonstration of truth, which destroys lies and wins to trust. But there's another element too. So this is out of um, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, 48 to 55. Jesus, the express image of the Father... The effulgence of his glory, the self-denying redeemer, throughout his pilgrimage of love on earth, was a living representation of the character of the law. Of the character of the law. 
of God, of the character of the law of God. In his life, it it is made manifest that heaven-born love, Christ-like principles, underlie the laws of eternal rectitude. Those principles that were made known in paradise as the great law of life will exist unchanged in paradise restored. The law of life. What do you understand that to mean? The law of life. Well, this is out of Zyre of Ages, page 19. Both the redeemed and the unfallen beings will find in the cross of Christ their science and their song. It will be seen that the glory shining in the face of Jesus is the glory of self-sacrificing love. In the light of Calvary, it will be seen that the law of self-renouncing love is the law of life, law of life, for earth and heaven. That the love which seeks not her own has its source in the heart of God. Law of life. Would would this be suggesting law of life? Law upon which life is actually constructed when God created. Let me see if this makes sense. When God went and decided, let's go and create a universe. Let's build things. Would he build his universe to operate in harmony or out of harmony with himself? (laughs) In harmony. So if God is love, then his design, his construction, his building of reality is an expression. So Paul says in Romans 1.20, God's divine nature is seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse. And we've done many examples. Remember, I think the most effective and and quickest to comprehend is the principle of breathing. Every breath you take, you give away carbon dioxide, and the plants give back oxygen to you. A never-ending circle of giving built right into nature. It's a law for life. Okay? There's many more. We won't go into all the rest. Then Desire of Ages, page 21. It is the glory of God to give. I do nothing of myself, said Christ. In these words is set forth the great principle, which is the law of life for the universe. The Father's life flows out to all. Through the Son it returns in praise and joyous service, a tide of love, the great source of all. And thus through Christ the circuit of beneficence is complete, representing the character of the great giver, the law of life. You see, this is design. This is how reality is actually built. If you understand this principle, like the law of respiration, you are free to transgress that law. Take a plastic bag, tie it over your head, and selfishly hoard your carbon dioxide to yourself. But the wages of that is death. This is what this is what Scripture is teaching. Sin deviates from God's design. It's selfish rather than selfless, and it actually is destructive to those who participate in it. So, basis of life is law of love. How God designed things. So, what would be needed for the person who has a plastic bag over their head? And they're not yet dead, but they're becoming, they're hallucinating, they're becoming dizzy, they're about to pass out. What's going to be needed to save that person? Take the bag off. You take the bag off and you put them back in harmony with the law and you understand scripture. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. As soon as you put them back in harmony with the law, they revive. So we are out of harmony with God's design because of what Adam has done. We're born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We're born with hearts that automatically distrust or fear-centered. And God wants to destroy death and bring life and immortality. What does he have to do? What's required now? A legal payment? This person's breaking the law of respiration. They've got a plastic bag tied over their neck, their, their neck, their head. They're, they're, they're dying. You can see they're slowly dying from this condition. What is required? Let's have a jury. Let's decide what the proper penalties are. Let's get some substitute and punish them in their place. Is that going to help this person with the plastic bag over their head? It's not going to help. What do they need? They need something that restores them back to harmony with law. We need to be partakers of the divine nature. How does that happen? How does God's design get put back into the species human? He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become what? The righteous. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might be set right. We might be put right. We might be healed. We might be restored back to God's original perfection. And how did that happen? Because in Christ, the two, this is a new template. He partook of our fallen humanity in from his mother Mary but his father is the Holy Spirit. So in Jesus Christ, he was able to experience temptation in every way, just like we are, yet without sin, Scripture says. And each one of us are tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires. So we had a humanity that could tempt him to act self-centeredly, yet he had a mind that was purely in harmony with his father, so he had the capacity to say no. Do we see any place in Jesus' life where he was tempted by his own feelings? Is there any historical record of that? 
Yes, both. And, and most, most powerfully, the weekend of the crucifixion, Gethsemane, he has this overwhelming emotions to save self, this agonizing temptation to act in self-interest and not go through the cross. But at every time the temptation comes to save self, Christ says, no, no one can take my life. I give it freely, which is God's design of self-sacrificial love. Greater love is no man that he gives life for a friend. And thus, in the being Jesus Christ, God's perfect design is restored into humanity. The species human. That's why it becomes the second Adam. So Jesus took our condition and, and fixed it. He healed it. Then what do we make about this fire that Peter talks about at the end? How do we understand the fire that destroys death? How does that work? Well, Isaiah 33, 14, and 15, the sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who can dwell with the consuming fire? Who can dwell with the everlasting burning? And the scripture, the next verse says, he who walks righteously and speaks what is right and rejects gain from extortion and keeps his hand accepting bribes. These are the people who spend eternity in the fire, not the wicked. What? How does that work? What kind of fire is this? And you know, all, all, every time God manifested himself in some form in scripture at the bush when the temple was dedicated. What's, what's his physical presence described as? Fire. Fire coming down to Sinai. And so we read in Daniel 7, 9, and 10, the ancient of days took a seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was, was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And what are they standing in? Rivers of fire. Are they, are, they, are they suffering? Are they in agony? Are they being tormented? You see, the, 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 the place, the, the line has been perpetrated. The devil's got the word believing. The place you don't want to go and the place you do not want to spend eternity is the place of eternal burning and consuming fire. And that place is God's very presence. This is the fire that never goes out. You know, Adventists, many Adventists are teaching the fire is going to go out. We don't want the fire to go out. That, that's the end of God. The fire only burns until all the wicked are gone, then it goes out. No. And do you see, if this is God's life-giving glory, are you, hopefully you're connecting with what we read about death and Hades are thrown in the lake of fire. How do you destroy death with what? With life. And who's the source of life? God, and so the fire coming out from God is the fires of his presence, which is the life-giving and life-glory, and that will destroy death. Yes? In the Old Testament, actually, when, um, when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai and there's glory emanating from his face, the actual Hebrew term actually denotes that there are rays coming from his face. Beams. Beams. It's yeah. like, uh, it denotes almost like a fire-like thing. So in, in Revelation to those who are outside of God's law, it's going to feel like fire because... Um, it, his law is convicting to their condition that he never let them change. So for those of us who would actually behold his character, those, that's going to be beautiful beams, but it's going to feel like fire to, the, to those who are, you know, pushing. I'm so glad you brought this up. Hopefully everybody in here, your computers are going, tick, 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 and you're pulling a whole bunch of other Bible scriptures up. But there's evidence-based thinking here as well. If we believe the historical record that Moses came down and his face was shining these beams, we can look at the evidence of what transpired. Number one, did Moses have third-degree burns? No. Did his whiskers catch fire? No. What does that tell you about the kind of fire this is? What happened when the children of Israel, though, looked upon his face? What did they do? Did they enjoy it and say, oh, this is wonderful? Or did it cause them suffering and agony and they begged him to put a veil over it? Okay, so there's something, there's information there for us. to. And then we have Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu go in and take unauthorized fire into the sanctuary and fire comes out from the Lord and consumes them and they die before the Lord. Next verse, the cousins go in and drag them out still in their tunics. Take that through. If I hit you with a flamethrower and burn you till you die, will you still be in your clothes when we're done? You will not. There will be no clothes to, to pull you out in, okay? It's, it's information. This is evidence-based thinking. Wow, okay, there's something different going on here. And then we think of Malachi with a son of righteousness, S-U-N, son of righteousness, rise with healing in his it also often says in the older translations, wings, but it actually is the same Hebrew. It means in his beams, the, the, the energy that extends out from, the life-giving glory that is coming out. That's why it's S-U-N. The sun has beams radiating out. Same thing. Good. Hope you're pulling all these pieces together. It's like a, like a jigsaw puzzle with 10,000 pieces. And, and the more the pieces you can fit in, the picture becomes more and more clear. So we see this. 
This is the fire that destroys sin. Remember it says in Hebrews, our God is a consuming fire. Ellen White adds, to sin wherever it is found, our God is a consuming fire. To sin wherever it is found. This is the fire that consumes sin. So what is sin made out of? Is it made out of matter, molecules, atoms, wood, plastic, flesh? Is that what sin's made out of? Choices. No, at its root, there are two roots to sin. Satan is the father of lies. lies. And what is it that will burn out and destroy a lie? Truth. Truth. And Satan is, and, and sin has its root is selfishness. And what is it that burns out or destroys selfishness? Love. Okay, other-centered love. And so the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and love. And at Pentecost, when the Spirit fell, they saw two streams, sometimes the old split tongues of fire, the fires of truth and the fire of love. Okay? And nobody there was hurt. Well then, what about the suffering of the wicked in the end in the eternal fire? What causes such great suffering? Physical or mental anguish? In Jesus' crucifixion weekend, what caused his greatest suffering? The mental. So what happens to those solidified in lies when they are bathed in infinite truth? What happens to those who really selfish when they experience genuine love, concern for them, sadness that they've chosen to destroy themselves? Well, consider this historical description from Signs of the Times, April 14, 1898. We read of chains of darkness for the transgressor of God's law. We read of the worm that dies not and of the fire that is not quenched. What is this talking about? You will use the same phrase at other places where he talks about the worm that won't die. Some are many days consuming and some are consumed as a short time. So what is she talking about? She's talking about the fire and the destruction of the wicked in the end. Okay. Now get what's described next. Okay. The worm that dies not and the fire that is not quenched. Thus is represented the experience of everyone who has permitted himself to be grafted into the stock of Satan, who has cherished sinful attributes. When it is too late, he will see that sin is the transgression of God's law. He will realize that because of transgression, his soul is cut off from God and that God's wrath abides on him. This is the fire unquenchable. And by it, every unrepentant sinner will be destroyed. What is the fire unquenchable? Their realization and comprehension of their condition when their denial and distortion can no longer work in the presence of unveiled truth. It is the mental constructs, the unremedied sin in their own character that torments them. That's what you hear being described. Here's another quote. This is out of Five Testimonies 120. The case of Pharaoh's place on record for our benefit. Just what took place in Pharaoh's heart will take place in every soul that neglects to cherish the light and walk promptly in its rays. God destroys no one. The sinner destroys himself by his own impenitence. And he goes on to describe that when you choose to hold to lies instead of the truth, you sear your conscience, you harden your heart, you make it less capable for truth to penetrate the next time. This is... a. 5 Testimony 120. We all, we want all to understand how the soul is destroyed. Would you like to understand how a soul is destroyed? It is not that God sends out a decree that man shall not be saved. Wait a minute. What would a decree be? That A decree would be something that a judge does. Sets and evaluates records and makes a ruling, a decree. But it is not that God sends out a decree that man shall not be saved. He does not throw a darkness before the eyes which cannot be penetrated. But man at first resists the motions of the Spirit of God, and having once resisted, it is less difficult to do so a second time, less the third and far less the fourth. Then comes the harvest to be reaped from the seed of unbelief and resistance. Oh, what a harvest of sinful indulgence is prepared for the sickle. What's being described? What kind of laws? What's what's happening? Is this design law? Is Is this infliction? Is this... This is design law. This is natural consequence. Then what do we do about Peter when he says the elements will melt in the fervent heat? 
What do we do with that? I mean, if you're, if you're going down following where I'm leading, this fire that doesn't consume matter didn't, didn't hurt Moses' face. But Peter talks about a fire that consumes the elements and melts in the fervent heat. What do we do with that? The question is not, is there a fire that will melt the elements? The question is, when is there a fire that melts the elements? Does that fire which melts the elements happen before or after the wicked die? After. Yeah, in the Old Testament sanctuary service, when did they burn animals alive? After the death. Did they ever take live animals and burn them? No. They only burned the carcasses after they were dead. Is there a lesson about how the fire that melts the elements occur in the end? Only after the wicked die. And why do they die? Who makes the choice for every individual wicked person to die? They choose it. It's voluntary with themselves. Remember Revelation 6.16? When they see Christ sitting on his throne, they beg for the mountains to fall on them and hide them from his face. They do not want to live in his presence. So in Great Controversy 5.41, God does not force the will or judgment of any. He takes no pleasure in slavish obedience. Think about the kind of obedience of a slave. How do, what's the mechanism for slavish obedience? Punishment, reward, do it or else, threat, coercion. No. And if we have God as the uh, inflictor of death sentence in the end, then that's where we're at. We're, we're, We're obeying for those reasons. He desires that the creatures of his hand shall love him because he is worthy of love. He would have them obey him because they have an intelligent appreciation of his wisdom, justice, and benevolence. And all who have a just conception of these qualities will love him because they are drawn toward him in admiration of his attributes. Can you love a despot like Hitler who is all-powerful and says, do it my way or I'll kill you? doesn't work. The principles of kindness, mercy, and love taught and exemplified by our Savior are a transcript of the will and character of God. God, now, these words are interesting. God executes justice on the wicked for the good of the universe and even for the good of those upon whom his judgments are visited. Did you, are you keeping in your mind the judgments of God and how they come out that we read earlier? Or do you immediately fall back into imposed law constructs and now we're in a judicial courtroom and God is inflicting stuff? Okay, we'll keep the next sentence going. He would make them happy if he could do so in accordance with the laws of his government and the justice of his character. How do his laws work? The laws of his government, how do they work? In accordance with the laws, in accordance with the design protocols. I would make them happy if I could, but you have to breathe. And if you insist on tying a a plastic bag over your head, if you insist on hanging yourself with a rope, I can't make you happy if you insist on putting yourself in that condition. I can't do it. You have to be out of that condition in order to have happiness. He surrounds them with tokens of his love. He grants them a knowledge of his law and follows them with the offers of mercy. But they despise his love, make void his law, and reject his mercy. While constantly receiving his gifts, they dishonor the giver. They hate God because they know that he abhors their sin. The Lord bears long with their perversity, but the decisive hour will come at last when their destiny is to be decided. Who's going to decide their destiny? Will he then chain these rebels to his side? Will he force them to do his will? Those who have chosen Satan as their leader and have been controlled by his power are not prepared to enter the presence of God. What's the presence of God described as? Consuming fire. Yes, consuming fire. Fire of love and truth. They're not prepared to enter it. Why? Keep going. Pride, deception, licentiousness, cruelty have become fixed in their characters. Can they enter heaven to dwell forever with those whom they despised and hated on earth? Truth will never be agreeable to a liar. Meekness will not satisfy self-esteem and pride. Purity is not acceptable to the corrupt. Disinterested love does not appear attractive to the selfish. What source of enjoyment could heaven offer those who are wholly absorbed in earthly and selfish interest? What's being described? They broke the rules. They didn't get their penalty paid. Therefore, legally, we can't let them in. Is that what's being described? Or an actual state of being that is out of harmony with how heaven functions? Could those who live... Could those whose lives have been spent in rebellion against God be suddenly transported to heaven and witness the high, the holy state of perfection that ever exists there, every soul filled with love, every countenance beaming with joy, enrapturing music and melodious strains rising to honor God and the Lamb and ceaseless streams of light flowing from the redeemed to, upon the redeemed from the face of him who sits upon the throne? 
Could those whose hearts are filled with hatred of God, of, of truth and holiness, mingle with the heavenly throng and join their songs of praise? Could they endure the glory of God and the Lamb? Notice the question. Would it be fair for them to be there? They haven't had the payment made. They haven't had been baptized in the right way. They haven't partaken of communion. They didn't worship on the right day. They kept the wrong day. Would it be fair to let them in heaven when all these other people have worked so hard to get here and accepted the right payment and their legal debts have been paid? It wouldn't be fair. <laughs> that is not what's said here. Notice, could they endure the glory of God and the Lamb? It's a state of being. No, no. Years of probation were granted them that they might form characters for heaven, but they have never trained the mind to love purity. They have never learned the language of heaven, and now it is too late. A life of rebellion against God has unfitted them for heaven. Its purity, holiness, and peace would be tortured to them. The glory of God would be a consuming fire. They would long to flee from that holy place. They would welcome destruction, that they might be hidden from the face of of him who died to redeem them. The destiny of the wicked is fixed by their own choice. Who makes the decision? By their own choice. Now listen to these words. Their exclusion from heaven is voluntary with themselves and just and merciful on the part of God. Like the waters of the flood, the fires of the great day declare God's verdict that the wicked are incurable. Is this the common view of God and his methods and his law taught in Christianity? In our church, in our schools, in our universities, from our pulpits? No. Why is the Lord not come? Because the gospel of the kingdom is to be preached to the whole world as witness to all nations. The gospel of the kingdom of love is not gone. Instead, this imperial pagan God construct of an arbitrary God with, with severe rules that he must be the source of inflicted pain and death is gone to the world. God is waiting for a real message the truth about him to go. Isn't this beautiful when you hear it like this? And then aren't you sad for those? I've even heard some people that I admire greatly talk about, you know, there has to be the investigative judgment so, so the angels in heaven will know who's safe to save. We have to review the records so we know that God is fair and, and, that, and that everybody can feel safe with us sinners coming to heaven. No, I'm going to tell you that is still part of the distortion. When you understand how reality works, it becomes self-evident. Only those who love love and love truth and have been renewed in Christ-likeness can actually stand in his presence and enjoy it. Those who are hardened in selfishness, who uh, prefer lies, when the unveiled glory of God comes, they are tormented. They beg for the mountains to fall on them. They don't want to be in his presence. It is ag- You don't have to have an investigation of records to figure this out. You just look and how people are responding to the unveiled glory of God. It's self-evident. Hey, Tim. Yes. What about the thousand years after that? What about the thousand years? Going over the records with those humans that were saved. After um, the redemption, we have that thousand years. So do we have a record of what happens during the thousand years? Is it spelled out clearly, or is there lots of, um, shall we say, speculation? A lot of speculation, but it would stand to reason that there would still be questions, even though we would recognize yeah, but is it the true judgment and, and God is merciful um, to prov- provide the right answer for the situation. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't there still maybe be questions in our it, minds? The question isn't, are these people who have come safe? That's not the question. Right. There is another question that, that many may have. And what's that question? Ah, so it's a different question. And this is why at the end of the thousand years, after you have spent time to review all this, at the end of the thousand years when the New Jerusalem comes down from heaven and the wicked are raised, a period of time goes by in which they're building implements of war and the gates of the New Jerusalem are open the entire time. And only when they march as an entire mob in mass to attack the city does the voice of Jesus say, close the gates. Up to that point, the gates were open the whole time. What is this revealing? That... If, if the records weren't enough for you, and, and so a, a person who, who had prayed their entire life for, for a child who had been wayward, and, and prior to their death, on their deathbed, that wayward child comes in and gets on the knees next to mama's bed and gives their heart to Jesus and accepts Jesus, and mama dies in peace knowing their child has accepted Jesus. And then in, in the resurrection, that child's not there. They say, but, but Jesus, I saw them accept you. Uh, they gave their heart to you. Why are they not here? Well, here's some records. You just go to the record room and figure it out. 
<laughs> no, that, I mean, that'll all be there for sure. But, but then you might say, but, but I saw him and I know he's still approachable. And if he saw all the wonders of heaven, they would come in. After the thousand years, that's why the new Jerusalem comes down, the wicked are raised, the gates are open. You might have a banner you hang out. Joey, Joey, it's wonderful in here. Come on in, the gates are open. Nobody comes. Why does nobody come? They're so settled into the lie, no truth has any impact on them. To get you a conviction of that, to kind of get you in the feel of what those people will, will be like, if you had a sibling that was inside the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, they were a follower of David Korash, and they're out on the inside hanging a banner over calling you to come in and join them. Are you going in? No. That's how those on the outside will view us. They'll be so convinced of the lie that they will believe we're the deluded ones and they won't come in. So the thousand years, what are we going to be doing? It's not fully revealed. It is not fully revealed. And, and by the way, it's not fully revealed whether it will be a thousand years for us or just a thousand years for the devil on the earth. And we don't have clear indication. Um, and there is actually some indication, Peter, with the, with the Lord, uh, a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. And the earth actually may be in a time dilation field. And the rest of the universe, it may have only been seven actual 24-hour periods since Adam's sin, where it's been six or seven or 8,000 years or however many thousands of years it's been here, because time is passing at a different rate in the rest of the universe than it is. We might be gone for a day and come back, and boom, it's been seven, a thousand years for the, for the death. We, we don't know for sure. Okay? We don't know that it'll be a thousand earth years in heaven. And I will tell you, if you even talk about physics and traveling at the speed of light, when you travel at the speed of light, um, time slows down, all kinds of strange things happen. So we might travel for a day and it's been a thousand years here. Is there a text for the gates are open until they start marching? Yes, there, in this, and there's two texts in Revelation that talks about the New Jerusalem, the gates are always open and never closed. And then Ellen White specifically says in Great Controversy, what's the page? I think it's like 651. I think it's 651 or 561, something like that. But I'm not exactly sure. Um, but in that, she says, when they, and it talks about the van and, and, and the devil leading the van to attack the city. And then the voice of Christ is heard close, giving the command to close the gates. So if you do a research, gates open, you will not find it. Because she doesn't say gates are open. She says when they march on the city, the voice of Christ is heard to close the gates. That's how she says it. Well, if they're closing the gates now, what position were they in before? Well, they were open, okay? And so that's, that's where you'll find that. So now, as we go into the book of Peter in our lesson for today, <laughs> I, want to, I, I went through this, this introduction, and I went through this because Peter loved Jesus. He, he, you know, he, he disappointed him. But he came back, he repented, he, he was forgiven, he was reconciled. And I, and I believe Peter, after this great disappointment where he really let him down and, and betrayed him, had a huge conviction to never misrepresent him again, never let him down again, I never want to come up short again. Thank you for your grace, thank you for your forgiveness. And how would Peter feel today if his writings were being used to misrepresent God so horribly? I think he would be appalled that his writings are being used to misrepresent God so horribly. So as we go into Peter, I want this, this context set that we have a real understanding of design law and, the, and how, how we can understand every one of these things that keep God in an absolutely magnificent light and not allow ourselves to, to be biased by, by uh, longstanding presuppositions and human law constructs. All right, Sabbath lesson. We're just getting there. When you think about Peter, what comes to mind... Do you find that Peter's a person that encourages you when you study his life? Yes. Yes. Did you notice that Peter has an impulse control problem? <laughs> he blurts out answers, sometimes good ones. You're the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. Sometimes not so good. Far be it from you to go through that, Lord. <laughs> he jumps out of the boat and swims to shore in one place. He says things that sometimes really are nonsense, and the scripture actually says he was talking out of his head. Uh, should we build a, a little booth for you and Elijah and Moses? He didn't know what he was saying, the scripture says. He was just talking out of his head. He asked Jesus if he can walk on water with him. Is that the first thing you do? Here comes somebody who walk on water. Maybe somebody you know. Can I walk out there with you? <laughs> he denies knowing Jesus. He runs to the tomb. He's got to, got to see if the tomb's empty. He pulls back from associating with the uncircumcised. I mean, he's impulsive. You ever notice that? He's impulsive. He had a heart that wanted to do good, but, but often allowed the impulses of the moment to overrule and then he was backpedaling frequently. Oh, I didn't mean... No, that's, that's not what I meant. No, 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 wait. Let's, 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 let's rethink that. 
The root impulse, though, from which Peter struggled, that caused him to come up short, where do you see it most effectively? In the upper room. In the upper room, Jesus tells the disciples, they're all going to run away. Peter says, not me, Lord. Impulsive. Not me. I'm not going to. Rest good. Not me. Impulse. There it is again, blurting it out. And, and when Peter said that, guys, I want you to make a, a discernment here. Do you believe when Peter said, not me, Lord, even though no one else runs, that Peter was lying to Jesus? No. He, or, or was Peter sincere and he meant what he said, and thus if he was on a lie detector, he's telling the truth as far as he knows it. Does that mean that because he's sincere and he means it, that Jesus can now trust him? Well, you mean it. I know you're sincere. You're not lying. I can trust you. Is that what Jesus said? Okay, great. I'm glad you'll be there for me. Or even though he's sincere and he's not lying, he still can't be trusted. This is profound, guys. This is where a lot of people in relationships miss it. They miss it in relationships with somebody who's being sincere. I don't, I don't, I'll never hurt you again. I promise. I'll never do it. And they mean it at that moment. Okay, you mean it. I can tell you're sincere. And you can tell. I, you know it. Can't trust him. Why? Well, did Peter love Jesus? Yes, he did. But what's the problem? He still loved himself more. As long as he didn't have to sacrifice and his life wasn't on the line, all's good. But the moment he ends up in this trial, the night of the trial, the, the pressure's coming down. Jesus is, you can see that this is going against the, Jesus at this point. His life is potentially threatened too. They've just been arrested. Uh, now they look to him. Hey, you're one of his followers too, aren't you? Not me. Mm-mm. Well, I mean, what's the immediate? It's not. Jesus is being mobbed by the crowd because he just fed 5,000 and he prays. You're one of his followers too. Sure am. Sure am. <laughs> That's not what's happening here. This context is, is, is life is being threatened here. And Peter knows it. You're one of, not me. Mm-mm. Three times. And this is the issue. And so the scripture says, while he's loved Jesus, he still loved himself more. And as long as he loved himself more, when he found himself in the position where self was threatened, he couldn't be trusted. He would protect self rather than stand up for what's right and true. And thus Jesus said to him, Luke 22, 31 and 32 of the King James says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that thy faith not fail. And when you are converted, when you are converted... Don't you find that interesting that here he was right with Christ? No, that's what I'm going to explain to you right now. I don't find it interesting. I think it is diagnostic of what I'm just telling you. What is conversion? See, up to that point, this is, I was going to point out what you're about to point out. He's been walking with Christ for three and a half years. He walked on water. He performed miracles. He's been set on in missionary journeys. He's, he's, you know, he's been ordained. He's seen the glory of God. Yeah, he's seen the glory of God in the, in the, in, in the Mount of Transfiguration. I mean, he's had his ordination certificate. Right? But Jesus says when you're converted, still unconverted. What is conversion? When you're not Christ more. Change from death to life. Yeah, it's an actual change of heart where we surrender ourselves. See, it's, conversion is not a vocal acknowledgement of Jesus Christ as Savior. It is an actual change of the heart where we surrender self, die to self if you want to use those words, and come to love God and others more than self. And this is only possible because of what Jesus achieved for us. Peter represents beautifully the life of us all, the struggle of us all, and the possibility for us all. Despite coming up short, experience, we can experience genuine change of heart and come up strong. Yes. Something I've wrestled with a lot is that conversion isn't also a one-time thing either. Because the Bible says, like, God commits sin and righteousness, and a choice is called to be made between the two. So day by day, as he, you know, as situations and I interact with people, he convicts me of how my character isn't the way he designed it to be, and then I'm called to make a choice. I see my, my sinful condition against his beautiful standard, his character, and I'm called to make a choice, and that happens day by day. So conversion here, Paul is, I mean, not Paul, I'm sorry, Peter is being... Um, he's being convicted again because something just came out of him. And so I think Jesus is calling him now to a higher standard. I, I, I agree. It's a process of ongoing growth where we, we recognize those shortcomings and we, want, and we surrender every day over and over again. You see this issue, though, in Peter in the upper room, loving self more. And ultimately God's goal is to get the person to come to the point that we trust God so much we will actually surrender our lives into his hands and won't stand to protect ourselves. And you see this in all the great patriarchs. You see this in Abraham. This was the Mount Moriah experience. 
after he had the miracle, do you trust me enough with your legacy, with your, with your, your future, you know, which was the big thing. Do you trust me? Okay. This was Jacob, Jacob's night of wrestling with the angel. The big wrestle, Esau was coming and his life was threatened. And what was Jacob before the night when he's wrestled? What was he doing? He sent all of his, all of his entire, um, uh, it was not just family, but his, all of his employees, all of the people who worked for him, and then, and then the family next, and then he, everybody's between him and them, he's the last protected, it's like, he'll have to kill all them to get to me, okay, he'll sacrifice everybody for me, but then that night he wrestles, he actually comes to the point that he wasn't wrestling against the angel, he was wrestling with the angel against himself. The angel was assisting him in the battle against self, and he finally came to the point that he surrendered self. And that's when Jacob's name was changed from deceiver to Israel, one who overcomes with the assistance of God, not who overcomes God, which is often how it's taught. He wrestled so hard that he pinned him, and God gave up. No, God was wrestling with him to overcome the selfishness in his own heart, and he, and he had the victory that night. This is Moses, by the way, after he struck the rock. Why did, why, did, why did Moses not go to the promised land? Because there was a little vestige of self still there. Do you trust me enough? And you remember Moses pled and prayed and prayed and prayed. There was this, I really want to go, I really want to go, I really want to, I've worked so hard 40 years, please, please, please. No, and he trusts God, he said, fine. All right, I won't. And he surrendered self, the ultimate thing, and then he's resurrected and taken into the ultimate promised land. This is the conversion. And you see it over and over again in all the lives of the great patriarchs. So, last paragraph states, most important, Peter knew what it was to make mistakes and to be forgiven and to move forward in faith and humility. Now, what was the forgiveness Peter so desperately needed. Under the legal model, he needed legal pardon. He needed someone to take his penalty. He needed to have that judicial magistrate say, forgiven. That's not what Peter needed. Peter was distraught and wept bitterly because why? He betrayed someone he loved. He loved Jesus and betrayed him and he let him down. And Peter was, Peter was afraid in his heart Peter was afraid that Jesus might now reject him. He was afraid that, that Jesus might not want him on the team. He was afraid that Jesus would look at him with, with scorn. So Peter needed to know that Jesus personally forgave him and didn't hold it against him. It was not legal forgiveness Peter needed. It was personal, relational forgiveness that Peter needed. Why? Because the natural result of sin, when you sin, when you deviate from God's design law, and, and by the way, they've done surveys of all the cultures in the world. Every culture in the world has been surveyed, and they asked them to give the definition of evil. What is evil in your culture? And all cultures give the same definition. Exploiting another person for your own gains. That's evil. Taking advantage, hurting another to put yourself ahead. This is evil. And you think of, of all the specific sins, that's what they all are in their root. It's self-centeredness, hurting another to benefit yourself. This is evil. Okay? And so, when we sin, we experience internal shame, internal guilt, internal condemnation, and we have fear. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were... Notice, they ran and hid because they were afraid. The fear caused them to condemn themselves. They're now afraid that God is going to come and hurt them. They're hiding from the only source of salvation and protection because of sin's transformation of the inner being. And we have all these distortions and fears that come up and take a hold of us. And so we need to experience God's forgiveness. It's not a legal process. It's experience. We need to know he forgives us. He doesn't hold against us. He now wants to heal us. But... What happens, what happens for persons who don't experience God's forgiveness? On the cross, did Jesus forgive those who put him there? Did they open their hearts to experience it? So God is extending forgiveness, which he does to all. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. All forgiven by God. It's extended to all participate and experience it. No, they didn't. And because they didn't participate in this forgiveness, what happened in their hearts and in their minds and in their experience? 
after the cross? Did they have more peace? Did they feel more secure? We've killed the enemy. We can now rest secure. Our enemy has been defeated. Did they have peace? Or did they immediately run into Pilate? Oh, oh, wait, they said they're going to rise on earth. Let's put a guard up there. And then if you read Desire of Ages, after the resurrection, they were walking around in terror because there's 500 that's been resurrected. And these dead are now walking the streets of Jerusalem, giving witness to the power of Christ. And they're the ones who killed him. They're living in terror and fear. There's no peace here. This is what happens when you reject the forgiveness. You harden your heart. You sear your conscience. You warp your character. You destroy yourself on the inside. This is not infliction. This is consequence. There's some more good stuff in the lesson. I wish we had time to get into more of it today. Um, The notes are available. Um, Boy, and they were talking about the things in the lesson that we should never compromise on. What are the things we never compromise on? Are we saved by the right doctrines? By the right rituals? By the right worship day? No. No, we're saved by a new heart and right spirit being built, rebuilt within. Much of Christianity, because of accepting the false law lens, has fallen into the trap of believing that salvation is dependent upon getting the definitions of the doctrines right or the rituals right or the behaviors right rather than getting the heart right. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus to do that which we could never do, to not only reveal you perfectly, to not only expose Satan as a liar and a fraud and his methods as the source of pain and death, but to restore your designs perfectly into the species human. And because of Jesus now, we open our hearts and ask the Spirit will take what he's achieved and reproduce it in us. So it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in us. That we might have new hearts, right spirits, wisdom, discernment, able to penetrate through the, the, the lies of this imperialism that has so taken the world and intoxicated the world, and that we can be effective witnesses for you to take the final message of mercy, the gospel of your kingdom of love to the world, that you might come. We pray in your holy name. Amen.